At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. A new Planet Fitness location is coming soon. To celebrate, you can join before we open for just $1 down, $10 a month. We're squeaky clean and ready to welcome you with tons of equipment and plenty of space to spread out. So join the judgment-free zone today. We're ready when you are. Just $1 down, $10 a month. Offer ends soon. Join us today. Coming soon to Grove City. Join now for only $1 down. Offer ends December 16th. Planet Fitness locations are independently owned and operated. See club for details. Welcome back to the Cosmology and Science podcast. And today we're going to have a book review of a great book we've been reading for the last week. So we're going to go through the book and then we're going to have some ideas and thoughts and then we're going to have a little bit of a rating at the end there. So the book is called Darwin's Doubt, The Explosive Origin of Animal Life and the Case for Intelligent Design by Stephen C. Meyer, who works at the Discovery Institute in Seattle, Washington. So this book came out in 2013 and um, it... It goes through a big argument about the evolution of life, especially then the last 600 years. And it looks at how this process has been, what it looks like, and some big questions and ideas of and reflections on the nature of this process and how many of the things or some of the things that started with Darwin about 150 years ago that even Darwin had doubts about has not been solved in the way one thought could happen at that time. It has actually been the other way that there are more mysteries and there are more questions about how this whole process has turned out the way it it is, the way we see it today, with more information. It's also just important to kind of to plug in two big things that have happened since Darwin's time. You had uh, fossils, fossil finds, especially in British Columbia in Canada and also in the southern part of China. So, and these findings have huge implications on the understanding and they did not go the way that Darwin had anticipated. It's actually the other way in many ways. So the fossil finds is one thing and the other thing is the discovery of the structure of the DNA molecule, which happened in 1953 and it it revealed a degree of sophistication and kind of digital encoding of the life uh, kind of recipe or like the str- just how this is coded into this this sequence with with atoms and molecules uh, to a degree that makes this idea from Darwinism this part of Darwinism that is 
complete random mutations even less likely. So the main argument is just that the randomness of Darwin doesn't fit the time frame of 600 million years from one-celled animals to what we have today and all the different life forms in between. So it's just the first three billion years on the planet, there was just one-celled animals. It, it went nowhere. You just had different types of one-celled animals for three billion years. And then 600 million years ago, then it starts to evolve. First with little sponges, for example, like tiny ones, with, which had up to five different cell types. And then suddenly around roughly 500 million years ago or 530 million years ago, you have this Cambrian explosion of a huge variety of life forms. For example, the trilobites and all these different kind of famous uh, looking uh, sophisticated beetle type of, of uh, fossil finds that we've seen so much of. So the argument goes here in terms of what Darwin said that he also acknowledged that just complete random mutations was uh, struggling to explain this sudden eruption of all these different life forms because it happens too quickly and it was like too big a variety. But Darwin and many in his time thought, well, it's just because we haven't found the intermediary life forms between the one-celled and, for example, the trilobites, but we will in the coming 50, 100, couple of hundred years, we will find... Uh, more of these kind of we will have findings that explains the mystery but then the opposite has happened in for example then British Columbia the Burgess Shale and then also in the southern part of China that you just have an even wider variety of animal forms in this Cambrian explosion and not anything in between so it just made the mystery in some sense even bigger than it was in Darwin's time so that is in some ways the starting point for the argument that is made in the book. So uh, it just says that there is a big question mark with this and then also with the sophistication of, of the DNA, which is another one because it's these huge steps is that uh, you need... He's making a, a comparison with like the design process as you see it in what is the uh, evolutionary process of animals with, for example, it's, it could be a confusing uh, comparison, but it could also be helpful. He compares this with development, for example, of technology. So if you look at different types of technology like uh, cars and trains and planes, the way that process is happening is that someone invents the car and then, or first maybe the train, and then you get lots of different types of train. And then someone invents the car, you get lots of different types of car. And then someone invents the plane, you get all these different types of plane. But you don't go from car and train to a plane directly. It doesn't evolve from that into the plane. So someone is inventing <laughs> the plane and then you get that. And then this is what the book claims and many biologists claim that is of how you can see body plants for different animals. Like suddenly you have a new body plan and then that uh, blends into a huge variety of that body plan. So the opposite argument would be that like you have in a creative process, you could have... Um, in some ways, you could also think about music sometimes. Like some genres of music have a certain form so then you can have a period of experimentation 
or just breaking one genre and you ha- you experiment in all different kinds of ways and then suddenly you find another genre which has kind of its uh, it's it's feeling it's nature like somebody suddenly discovers jazz and then that is a thing or they discover uh, like rock or blues and then that becomes uh, a form or a shape of something and then you get the variety of that so that is uh, uh, in some ways a counter argument but again in this book the argument is that these body plants seem to erupt or emerge fairly quickly and then they start going into varieties so uh, with those things in mind um, you you could also make the argument like the comparison with uh, other technologies like vinyl records and then CDs or like radio and television that this is also kind of inventions that won't necessarily naturally or randomly (laughs) evolve from earlier stages so um there's also a great quote here about uh, if you look at more at the the information part in the DNA because it's so sophisticated that uh, it it looks like a representation of information that is hard to explain that it should arise from nothing. So he says here, whenever this is quoting from. Um, from in the beginning of the prologue. So whenever we find functional information, whether embedded in a radio signal, carved in a stone monument, etched on a magnetic disk, or produced by an origin of life scientist attempting to engineer a self-replicating molecule, and we trace that information back to its ultimate source, invariably we come to a mind, not merely a material process. So you could also think that if you just look around like in, in the room you're in, if you have some text somewhere, that text comes from inside the head of somebody who wrote that text in the first place. Or if you walk in the street and you see a signpost with some letters on it, <laughs> that the origin of those of the of the message in that those letters is has started in the mind of someone. And then even I was a bit kind of confusing part of it, but like, even if it's made by a machine, it's still somebody made the code for that machine to to make it create those uh, sentences, for example. So, you know, if you if you trace it back long enough, it comes from from an intellect, a, a conscious mind. So, that is part of uh, of the hypothesis that that uh, is set up as a possible explanation. So that goes to the kind of the overall conclusion, which is uh, in some ways kind of a soft one. It's just that if you look at the design process or, or if you just look at the evolutionary process, is a better word, over the last 600 million years, the debate is then, does this more resemble a complete random uh, undirected process that just happens by itself or does it look more like a typical system design process? And then you have this camp now with Stephen Meyer and others who say it's it like the likelihood of a design process, like a system design process, is higher than complete randomness. Also in part because there is a time constraint that is very hard to um, to get out of. That complete randomness is not likely to produce these things within the time frame. So th- that is kind of the whole argument that is made in the book. But it's very well presented and he goes through 
all the science, the examples, different theories, and um, and it's easy to you end up <laughs> like you read a book and you end up thinking this is something to look more into. This is uh, this is an interesting argument, especially because it's based upon new findings after Darwin and more uh, understanding and especially the discovery of the sophistication of the design in nature itself. So um, that is um, kind of the overall points. There are so many nice and interesting little trivia parts in here. Uh, for example, uh, you have something called uh, for in bacteria tribes. So this is about like the flexibility of the genes. Like there, there are many sleeping parts of the genes. So now we're just into the trivia part here. But like you have something called SOS response for cert certain bacteria tribes. That if the bacteria is um, is suddenly exposed to, uh, for example, for example, radiation, then or any kind of damaging influence on on the tribe then they will suddenly unlock new things in their in their genes that will create this this enormous variety of of how they're breeding so they get this huge uh, like diversity of new um, bacterias as long as this damaging influencing is happening and then when that stops it kind of comes together again <laughs> to back to normal and then those part of the genes are going to put to sleep again it's just super fascinating like all the things that are put into the genes for for circumstances that have like that has happened in the past that has it's a part of the learning and the experience of the genes so um there, which points to this thing that in the beginning one thought that only a little part of the genes are functional, the rest is just junk. Uh, but then gradually we, there has been a, a new understanding that it's much more complicated. Many of these parts of the DNA are emergency responses, for example, and they're also encoding things of kind of how to process the information in those more functional parts of it. So it's a, it's a very complicated kind of software program as, uh, for example, Bill Gates has called it, like it's, it is like a, the digital code. It is the code of a software uh, program, but it's just much more sophisticated than anything we have ever made as humans. So um, that is a, an interesting reflection from him. And they also had this new uh, pro, uh, new project called Encode, which is we looked more into the, the DNA of the hu of human the, the human DNA DNA, and they found that up to 80% is useful, but it is kind of this meta information in much of it that is only useful sometimes. Um, and then another fun part was the PAX6 gene, which is a little chunk of DNA that is the code, if you will, <laughs> for eyes. But it, that same little chunk, like identical little chunk of the PAX6 create very different eyes if it's in a uh, if it's in a mammal an insect or a cephalod oh sorry <laughs> cephalopod then you get different sorts of eyes you can get this kind of uh, thousands of, of tiny little eyes in the insect or you can get like a typical mammal eye it's the same chunk of dna so the context of of the of little chunks is important so in some ways, it's like words or like sentences can mean different things depending on 
the wider context, which makes this random mutation thing also a bit problematic because if you take a book and you just start randomly change a couple of letters or a couple of words in a sentence, then the whole paragraph might change uh, its meaning and become uh, often less uh, understandable or often just uh, incomprehensible, just inconsistent and kind of unintelligible. So that goes into the kind of how how interconnected the genes are makes it even more complicated to have random changes. So we had one big question in the beginning when we started reading the book very quickly. So that's kind of this one minus with the book that I was just like, in terms of the structure and the argument that was being made, uh, but that might be just uh, just for our case. But the question was that um, this other way of looking at it could function be reflected into the gene, or like could could behavior be reflected into the genes as a way of changing the genes, not just random mutations and not uh, like some some mind designing it. We briefly mentioned it uh, an earlier time, like if some monkeys are constantly stretching to get the fruits, would that eventually, that stretching, be encoded in longer arms in the DNA for the monkey? So, uh, and then we found, but that came very late in the book, that around page 365, you get this, this alternative explanation, and it's called uh, natural genetic engineering which is kind of that the genes are responsive to the environment. Uh, there's a researcher called James Shapiro. He has a book called Evolution, which we briefly looked at, which is interesting because he talks about this, that perhaps the genes are not like this. Uh, he's pulling this very much into computer science. And this is another astonishing thing. If you look into the DNA kind of as biology, it resembles more and more and more hard computer science. It's just like circuits and it's logical ports and it's 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 a whole different field of of thinking and understanding. So uh, this other writer called then James Shapiro, he writes about that maybe the genes are not this read-only memory chips <laughs> like uh, ROM chips. They are more like the read-write memories. So the genes can can. Um, adapt and be flexible in terms of rewriting its own code uh, in response to the environment, which seems like a natural process. So it is mentioned in the book as one of those alternatives to this this uh, uh, straight Darwinism that everything is by random, just like random mutations by itself in the molecules. Uh, so, uh, But it's still portrayed as like Shapiro's thinking about this natural genetic engineering as an interesting field, but it still won't account for the Cambrian explosion about 500 million years ago or this, these huge jumps in, in structure and sophistication of the digital systems in the DNA. But it is there. But it came a little bit late because it's a natural thing to wonder about in the beginning that maybe there are other explanations or maybe there's a combination of explanations, not just like complete randomness or complete conscious design. So uh, those are the main points. Uh, there's also, <laughs> they had a picture of uh, when they started discovering more of these, of the coding of the DNA that they get the flies with, uh, uh, suddenly they got legs growing out of the head instead of uh, 
instead of the kind of this antenna things because of the switch around and I started toying with the DNA and then suddenly you get this this uh, strange <laughs> new creatures. So um, but, but that was part of, of the discoveries very early on. But also then how how much of it, if you start toying around, that it usually just doesn't work. So that is um, roughly the main points of the book. So then towards the end, you get kind of a different way of of approaching this whole whole um, topic, which is that um, where does this lead us from here? And then it, it, it tries to make the argument that if we at least keep the door open or if we, we try to hypothesize that there is some kind of a, a process happening, then how, what could we expect to find more of when we're doing the research for the last 600 million years? What kind of discoveries? Where to look for things? And also then into the future, what can we think of into the future and what can we learn from the process in itself? Uh, so that's another thing that we kind of wish there was a bit, little bit more of in the book because... Uh, a big part of it is just to kind of firmly uh, build under the argument that he's making, but it would be fun to say, okay, let's say this is correct, then what? He he, he kind of briefly touches upon it towards the end, but there, there could have been a bit more of it. So, um, uh, but that's also a, a little challenge or a little um, suggestion to everyone listening. If you have some ideas about this, especially kind of what would the implications be, you could send it to us at scienceideas at gmx.com just send an email to scienceideas at gmx.com and then we will work on it and we'll discuss it here on the podcast and then we can try to be creative and and, uh, open up new avenues and new worlds of discovery when it comes to the evolution of life there could be so much more fun things to work on and to discover and um, there's a couple of other things we're just at the very end here to talk about which is um, this way of thinking is uh, disturbing f- for many people because it, if you have scientific discoveries that this is kind of a bit like Galileo times. If you if you have discoveries that is disturbing, uh, kind of the deep axioms of any theory, there will be huge resistance. So, even if in this case the the writer the author is not suggesting anything. Uh, from theology, it just points out that the process looks more like design than randomness. That's all he says. Uh, but so now we're going f- purely into the speculative. <laughs> that you could even see it like this: that what he is suggesting is not necessarily something that would be embraced from a theological perspective, because in most theology, any like the idea or the the concept or the definition or the starting point of the divine is usually perfection, pure, 100% good, beauty, um, like the infinite good and and just being in itself, but as something that is moving towards the good and also then again like embedded with perfection as a contrast to the human. But there is a, a little conundrum here that if, if you look more into the design of evolution, for example, and one finds that the process is not very good, 
then you end up with something that both scientists and theologians would hugely reject as being something that they don't want to associate with because then it would be like, let's say the cosmos is kind of mediocrely made. <laughs> it is not, it has some, some newbie mistakes in, in the construction, in the fabric, in the beginning. Uh, maybe this is just an intermediary cosmos. So, and then maybe better ones will come after this one, for example. So, but, but that would be, if you think of it as an evolutionary process of many cosmoses, now we're into this um, star maker, this is science fiction for 100 years ago. Like there's a uh, iteration of, of cosmoses because it's learning from one cosmos to the next one. Um, then if it's, if it's purely evolution, then that would fit into just like uh, a natural process. But if it is made, it's, it's kind of a, <laughs> it's a, it could be a, uh, the, the craft craftsmanship could be kind of not fully matured in the way it's made. So that is uh, something that I have not seen anyone <laughs> comment on. So, uh, But it's just a thought about this. And you could also say that, uh, just to add one final part about like how the process looks and kind of what what lies within the seed. We, we keep coming back to this. Like, so a seed of a plant has the, the 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 plan for the whole plant. So when when the plant is like two weeks old, it, it's a small little thing, but it's it will grow into a bigger plant. It might be that, especially if you have repeating universes, that it is in the seed in the fabric of the cosmos now. Uh, new stages or like if you think about a, a five-year-old little person <laughs> that will grow into an adult that it's it isn't finished when like if a, if a child is five years old it's not a finished uh, kind of uh, organism in this in the sense that what it's going to grow into so but the plan is in in the child but there's nobody there's no one actively guiding the growth of of the little child or of the little plant, it's it's in the fabric of it. So that could also be something about the cosmos. That is, uh, it looks like a design process because it follows uh, steps from an earlier uh, experience of evolution and kind of a learning in itself. It just postpones the whole <laughs> question and like, well, then how is this process of of universes? But but at least it could be uh, one alternative perspective to look at to just get some new ideas. That that might be. Uh, a natural growing for the cosmos as like a tree that is growing into a bigger tree. Okay, so with that, um, the rating, final few minutes here. So we are from 1 to 10 uh, on a couple of different criterias. For the narrative and the substance, we're giving it an 8+. plus. So uh, this is mostly because there are some things that we wish were addressed earlier in the book. Uh, in itself, the storytelling is really good. Both kind of the when it it becomes a little um, a little drama of discovery or mystery, it is it's great writing. Uh, so and also the substance scientifically is kind of it's solid. The, the arguments that he is making uh, and for clarity, we give it a ten in terms of the writing and the clarity of the writing. It's ten. Structure is an eight uh, because we wish. As we said a bit earlier, there was more speculation. Like he could finish the argument of these two main chunks of, of uh, problems or like discoveries that challenges the Darwin theory. But then instead of filling that with kind of 80% of the book, it could have been 
a little bit less and then you could have more. And kind of where do we go from here? Uh, what kind of this, uh, exploration does this open up for? And, um, and just uh, more of an, kind of an uh, impetus for <laughs> creativity and, and uh, just venture out on a new journey and discovery. So that's the, the eight on the structure. So the overall rating for this book from one to 10 is a solid nine. It's um, it's very thorough. It could only if it had gone a little bit faster to the point, it would be a ten. But this is nine, and it's also a very strongly recommended read. This is absolutely one of the book from the last century, uh, last sorry decade <laughs> from the twenty tens. Uh, that is very interesting to read. It's based upon newer discoveries, and uh, it's. Um, it gives you an update on the science as well into a world that is that is kind of a little bit of a bubble sometimes. So it's very strongly recommended for for everyone to read if you have a little bit of interest in in the evolution of life or just life in general. Okay, so that is almost 30 minutes. So hope some of this was interesting, some food for thought, some inspiration to read the book. Again, it's called Darwin's Doubts was, and his doubts was The Cambrian Explosion. And the subtitle, The Explosive Origin of Animal Life and the Case for Intelligent Design by Stephen C. Meyer. So um, with that, just send us emails, thoughts, reflections, ideas on scienceids at gmx.com. Hope you're having a great day and uh, a good day in front of you and something inspirational to do. And with that, thank you so much for listening and see you again in another episode. Glenn Fittick's Riches 25 campaign aims to challenge the historically unitary and largely misinterpreted vision of wealth and what it means to live a life of riches that is commonly displayed in culture. Riches 25 breaks from the single malt scotch whiskey norm and helps redefine what it means to be rich. The launch of the Glenn Fittick Riches 25 is a curation of 25 individuals that challenge traditional notions of wealth and express an alternate idea of what it means to live a life of riches. For me, it's about fulfilling work and flexibility in my time and nobody breathing down my neck except for you, Jen. And when there's too much breathing, I reach for my Glenfiddich 23. I want it to be old enough to have its own scotch if it wants to. Skillfully crafted, enjoy responsibly. Glenfiddich 2021, imported by William Grant & Sons, Inc., New York, New York. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.